Rebecca, get excited about spaghetti and meatballs. Thank you, Tyson. I appreciate that. I know. I know. Spaghetti and meatballs is something we can all agree. I'm pretty sure I thought that's what he was going to say. We can all agree upon spaghetti and meatballs, but he went deeper and more theological than I was thinking in that particular moment. I thought, oh, we can all agree on spaghetti and meatballs. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, please go ahead and contact Lynn. I hope uh, this is like what we hope to be the first of many uh, opportunities to gather for a simple meal. Uh, I think they're also looking for additional hosts. So if you'd like to host a meal, this is something that you feel particularly drawn to. And you think, man, I want to open up my house and throw noodles on the table and just get people excited about coming and sharing a meal together. So if that's something that's on your heart, please go ahead and let Lynn know also. I don't think it has to be spaghetti and meatballs. You know, that's Lynn's jam. I'm pretty sure they're going to be awesome, by the way, uh, knowing Lynn. She's going to bring the spaghetti meatballs to the party. But uh, if it's something else, maybe you can contact her. And Lynn's right over there. Maybe you can wave, Lynn. Let everybody know. She's in the corner. You can contact her fabulous, fabulous hostess. She would love to connect you in that way. man. And also, just as a clarifying factor, in case you didn't know this, uh, we don't take cryptocurrency. If you saw that in the bottom of the giving slide, we don't take Bitcoin. We don't take cryptocurrency. Yeah. We take just about everything else, but not, not those things. Just, just making sure you know that that was a joke. Thank you, Mitchell, for sharing that with us. Really appreciate it. Hey, it is awesome, awesome to be with you guys. Thank you so much for, for being here and for all the folks that are online joining us. Uh, just making time to be with the Lord today. I know there are many things that vie for our time and attention on any given day of the week, particularly on the weekends. It's summertime. There's many things going on. Uh, but for you to make time just to be present and to be here uh, is already a gift. So I just want to say thank you for doing that. And it's a gift to be with you. And for those folks who are at home, I hope you're in your pajamas. I hope you're on vacation somewhere. I hope something beautiful is happening uh, that is keeping you from being here, but that you're connecting online. Really, really awesome. Hey, so today we're doing a part two of one of the most famous and one of my favorite parables of all time as we're journeying through the stories of Jesus. And this is one of those parables that I think uh, in my study and in my faith, I think I missed the point of for many, many years. And so it was really exciting to go back into the Word of God, go back into the Scriptures and see something that you never noticed before. Have you ever experienced that? If you've been walking with the Lord or journeying with the Lord and studying the scriptures for any length of time, it's always really exciting to go back into the word, see something that you didn't see before because you've changed and you've transformed and life has happened. And so we come to the word with different lenses, different points of view, different experiences that inform our understanding. And so different things will be illuminated at different times. That's why I think the Word of God is, is called living and active. There's some kind of exchange going on beyond simply the reading of the words on the page. And so hopefully that's something that we can experience together as we look back into this story of the prodigal sons. I'll call them the prodigal sons or the story of the two lost sons. And what I'd like to do is read the first portion again just to refresh your memory. If you didn't catch... Last week's sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to that online because these are really uh, tandem messages that go together. But I'll just briefly uh, go over that review, refresh your memory, and then we'll jump into the second half because I'm excited to talk about this 
elder brother, this elder brother that I think has a larger role than, than maybe we've given him in the past. All right? So let's pray together. We'll jump into God's word and we'll see how he speaks to us. Heavenly Father God, we give you thanks and praise because this is your house, God. This is your house that we have uh, prepared for you to come and be welcomed here. And we receive it as a gift that you've invited us into your home that we can be with you and worship you and praise your name. And so, God, just as we enter into your word, I ask that you would uh, enliven us and empower us by your spirit. Wherever we are this morning, whatever it is that we have going on in our lives, I pray that you would meet us right in that place, that you would help us to attend our hearts and our minds and our spirits to you. God, and that you would just be present and that you would receive and and interact with us during this time, God. We come to meet you. We're so grateful, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, so I'm going to read uh, Luke 15, and we're going to read from 11 to 24, and then we'll hit the pause button. But here's how this passage reads. It says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, and sent him into, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And pause there for a moment. And so last week we talked about sort of the incredulity of the story. We talked about the audacity that it took for this son to go to the father and say, I want my share of the estate. The father willingly does this. And that would have been tantamount to saying, I want you dead. I don't want you. I don't want you around anymore. I just want your stuff. I want my share of the estate. It would have been an absolute nightmare, unthinkable thing to say to your father in the ancient Near East. Shamed and betrayed like no other. You can imagine the way that his community would have talked about him. Did you hear about Bill, right? Did you hear about Bill and his son? who asked for his inheritance, and he gave it to him, and the story would have rolled and rolled and rolled. 
on and on and on. And yet, in the midst of that shame, in the midst of that betrayal, right, he, did, he wasn't met with retribution, he wasn't met with punishment. He was received warmly and beautifully. The father went out of his way, didn't care about the shame and embarrassment, right? Went out to his son, greeted him there, and this beautiful exchange happens. This is really one of the most famous moments in the scriptures is where this son is ready with this speech that he's going to give to his father in repentance. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Take me as one of your servants. And the father doesn't even care. Reaches right past all of that. Embraces him. Gives him back his place in the home. A robe, a ring, sandals on his feet. Kills the fattened calf and throws a party for the son. Who then has a moment to ask for his repentance, but we stop and we think this is the part of the famous story, and that's where we usually stop, right? The, the older brother doesn't get much billing in the story because we want this story to be a story of forgiveness. That's kind of how we're wired, right? This is the gospel playing itself out uh, in the parable that there's this son who's done this unthinkable sort of cosmic kind of sin, and here's this loving Heavenly Father who is receiving him and welcoming, back, welcoming him back with open arms and giving back to him some undeserved gift of grace. But when we stop and we read this story, we have to go back and we maybe have to put ourselves in the mindset of the listeners that were hearing the story in the first place, right? In the ancient Near East, we stop, we go, man, that's a wonderful story. It's so beautiful. And we think about grace and forgiveness and sinfulness. Maybe we think about ourselves inside of that story, both as a parent, but also as the sinner who ran away. And, and we begin to get all weepy because it's such a beautiful story. And yet, as we stop and reflect upon the way that these early listeners would have heard the story, they would have been like, wait, wait, wait that can't be the end of the story. There's no way that this story is over because that story is whack. That's how it would have been. Unbelievable. This would have been a fairy tale story, right, that Jesus is telling. Totally impractical, almost pointless, unthinkable story of the rainbow unicorn father who goes running out to meet the son who's squandered everything and shamed his family forever. There's no way that the original hearers would have said, that's the end of the story, it's so beautiful, let's move on, right? Maybe another way of kind of framing this is if we look out, zoom out into the entire chapter of Luke, and that's sometimes helpful to do when we're confronted with parables or stories and narratives because they're often centered around the same kind of ideas. So if we zoom out a little bit, into the beginning of Luke 15, look at what it says. Jesus is answering a specific question with these parables. Why are all these religious folks angry at you, Jesus? Right? Look at what it says in verses 1 to 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. Right? Tax collectors, sinners, you know, these were the, these were the, the prodigals, right? But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man who welcomes and eats with them, welcomes sinners and eats with them, right? So you've got two people kind of sitting in the group, right? Sinners and tax collectors, these are the bad of the bad, right? And they kind of know it. And then you've got the Pharisees and, 
and, uh, and teachers of the law, and they are muttering, right? And when we say muttering, they're just kind of judging Jesus under their breath, right? They're like, hmm, I don't know about this guy. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. This is the beginning of the story, right? So it gives us a little bit of insight into why Jesus is telling three parables, right? Because he's got these listeners. He's got some younger sons listening, and then he's got some what? He's got some older sons listening as well. Do you see it? Two groups in the audience, and he's laying into them three stories, right? He tells the three stories of which this is the third one. The parable of the prodigal son is the third parable in the story. It's the bring it home parable. And it's not so much about what happens to prodigals. It's about what happens to Pharisees. That's kind of Jesus' point. Nothing comes between you and God like our morality and our goodness and our decency and our rectitude. The purpose of the parable is not to touch our hearts and make us weepy, even though it does do that, but to blow apart and expand our categories of who's in and who's out, who is good and who is not, as they relate to God. In come the sinners and the outcasts. Out go, usually in outrage and in a huff, the religious folks. Do you see it? This is sort of the pattern of the gospel as it's heard by folks. In come the sinners and outcasts. Out, usually in outrage, go the religious people. And we ask the question, why is that? Why is it that the religious folks, the moral people, the good people, always get angry when the gnarly folks come in, right? How do these people get in here? Who let them in? How did they find us? How did they invite them? Why are they here, right? Questions start flying. If we want to know the answer to this irritation, we have to ask this question. Who is the older brother? Who's the older brother? So let's do that together. Luke 15, we'll pick back up in verse 25 go to 32, and see who the older brother is, right? Let's just listen for his story. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the other servants and asked him, what is going on? Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Listen to what happens to the older brother. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This explanation, this interaction between the father and the older brother, 
who refuses to come inside. Yet again, the father has to go out and gather up one of his sons, right? So what do we learn from this kind of third climactic parable about this elder son? First and foremost, if we read it carefully, we realize that the elder brother is also lost. Do you see it? The elder brother is lost. He's gone outside too. And he's not coming back. He's not coming inside. He's refusing to go in. And in the elder brother, Jesus is showing us that you can be good and you can be moral and you can do all the right things and still be lost. If you look at the, par- the three parables in the chapter, something is always out of place. That's kind of the point of the first, these three parables. Something is where it shouldn't be. The sheep, the coin, and these two sons are not where they're supposed to be. And in each case, someone has to go out and get the thing that's not where it's supposed to be. Do you see that? The shepherd goes out for the sheep. The woman goes in search of the coin. And the father has to go out and try to bring his sons home and bring them back to be with him. Henry Nouwen writes in The Return of the Prodigal Son. This is a fantastic book, by the way, if you want to dig deeper into this parable and understand it. It's a short book. It's fantastic. It's toilet reading. Uh, I encourage you to get a copy of it. He says this, Not only did the younger son who left home to look for freedom and happiness in a distant country get lost, but the one who stayed home because also became a lost man. Exteriorly, he did all the things a good son is supposed to do, but interiorly, he wandered away from his father. He did his duty, worked hard every day, and fulfilled all his obligations, but became increasingly unhappy and unfree. Is that fascinating? In other words, Jesus is sort of communicating, you are as alienated from my message and my heart as this elder son is from his father's heart and from his father's home. And this is really important for us to grasp. This simple notion is that you can be in proximity to God and yet far from God. You can be in the family and yet out of relationship. Verse 31 says this, My father, my son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. And this is a fascinating little verse, because when he says you are always with me, this is not a relational term. This is a term of location. You are always near me, the father says. Not about intimacy, not about connection, not about relationship, but we are always together. We are never apart, and everything I have is yours. And in fact, that's absolutely true, because the younger son has already squandered his portion of the estate, so everything else that exists in the estate that the father and the elder son are living off of are actually part of the older son's estate. Do you see that? So this is a literal statement. John 14, 9 articulates this in a similar way. Jesus answers, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? There can be a disconnect in understanding 
and in relationship, even though proximity exists, maybe most famously Matthew 7, 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That is a serious sort of flipping of the script, right? You think you're waltzing in to the kingdom because you've done all the things? This is not a, a flimsy list, by the way, right? No one in here says, I was a good person. They said, I prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name, right? We performed many miracles in your name, Jesus. And yet, Jesus says, I never knew you. We didn't have a relationship. And he casts them aside and calls them evildoers. Even though maybe their entire discipleship was spent doing the ministry of Jesus in Jesus' name. And if that's not sobering, if that's not a sobering possibility, I'm not sure what is. Right? Maybe we're just ignoring it and trying to get in by the skin of our teeth. Because what this is also telling is, is that we don't have to just be in proximity to Jesus and can be lost. We're not just in the family and still disconnected. We can be spiritually operative and successful. We might even be blessed and anointed and still not be in relationship with Jesus. And we don't have to look too far. We don't have to look into the scriptures to know that story. There are a lot of wonderful, uh, successful ministries, successful pastors who in the last decade have gone down in a heap and dragged some of the largest, most successful, thriving right, ministries into the toilet along with them. And people are scattering from those churches and from evangelicalism, if we're honest, right? They're running as fast as they can, as far as they can. So you can be operative. You can be blessed. You can be anointed. You can be successful and still be broken and still be lost. Right? What a powerful story. Can you hear the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttering under their breath. They're still muttering, by the way. Right? Now they're just writhing in their sandals a little bit. Right? It is possible to never disobey any of God's orders. And this is what the Pharisees were famous for. They never broke the law. They kept all of it to the letter in its most literal form. You can be operative in the Father's affairs and not know the Father's heart. You can have a mechanical connection and not have an organic connection. You see it? We can do this in any aspect of our lives, can't we? I know we can do this in ministry. I know it for a fact. Because there are times when a week goes on and preparation and study and prayer feel mechanical. 
just like anything. That might feel weird to you, right, to go into the Word and have it feel mechanical. But when I go into study and you go into sort of pastor mode, Sunday's coming. The tyranny of Sunday, we call it. Sunday is coming, ready or not, here I come, right? And so you're like, man, i got to get after it. And there are days, I'll be quite honest, there are days when you're just not feeling it, right? Because that's just reality. Other things in life vying for your attention and for your energy, and you're just not feeling like you're in the flow of God, and so you're like, hey man, there but for the grace, I'm just going to go. And I open up the Word, and I just approach it in this mechanical, sort of lifeless sort of way. I've got to understand the Word of God, and then I've got to come up with my three points, and it's fantastic if they all start with the same letter, and da 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 and you go down the road, and you're like, okay, I'm just going to start cranking this out, and there have been many, many, many Sundays where I just roll in and say, well, okay, God, this is what I've got. This is it. This is what I've got. I've written down a bunch of stuff, and if you don't show up and bless this thing, then this is going to be a hot, hot mess, right? And that's how it goes. This is how we can be. We can be this way in our marriages and in our most intimate relationships. We can be mechanical. We can go through the motions. We can fulfill the contract. We can fulfill our vows, right? Even if our heart is not totally in it, right? We can do this in our work. We can mail it in, right? We can go to work, and we don't have to be passionate about what we're doing, right? You don't have to be totally invested in the emails that you're cranking out that day or the, the reports that you're writing or the things that you're researching. You don't have to be particularly cordial with the people around you. Just go on and put a happy face on and put your earbuds in and hope nobody bothers you. You can go through the motions and just mail it in. You can do it with your school. You can do it with your friends. You just fill in whatever it is that you want. You can do the things excellently, can't we? We can do them perfectly and yet not have our heart be in it. In fact, we can not have our heart in it, but our heart actually begins to fracture when it's not applied in the proper way in the relationships and the, the context that it's intended for. Because when I'm doing something in my marriage or in my ministry and my heart is not in it, right, I fail to be present. When I'm mailing it in, I'm not there. Right? I'm on vacation already because my mind is somewhere else. I'm not present. I'm not joyful when I'm mechanical in my engagements. I'm just doing it because it's my job. Right? I'm not singing a song, washing these dishes, or loading the lawn. I'm not doing that for fun. I'm doing it because I'm supposed to do it. I'm fulfilling my role and my responsibility. I'm not growing. I'm not finding it fulfilling. In fact, I'm moving away from the person that I'm doing it for at times because my resentment starts to build or my frustration starts to build because your hearts and your minds are not connected in that space. So on the outside, exteriorly, now one uses that word, I can do all the right things, but interiorly, in my heart, I can be moving away at the same time. Do you see it? You see it? And we feel those things. We intuit those things more than we can acknowledge those things at times. That can happen in a very insidious and sneaky way 
right? And so something for us to pay attention to that we can learn from the elder brother in his lostness. Because not only is he lost, I would argue that the elder brother is more lost, right? Loster, er, than the younger brother. And we might ask, like, what do you mean by, you know, more lost? If you're lost, you're lost. And we say, yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, like, if you're dead, you're dead, right? Regardless of whether you got killed by a lion or by a spider, you're still dead. But, you know, qualitatively, one is ugly dead and the other is, you know, pretty dead, right? So there's different degrees of lostness that we can experience. And the elder son is not lost in spite of his goodness. He's lost, I think, because of his goodness. He's lost because of his goodness. Why isn't he going in? You ever wonder that? Why is the older son just stuck outside? I'm not going in there. I'm not going to be part of that party. And he's just throwing a tantrum outside. Why? Because he doesn't understand the father's heart. And the father tries to explain it to him. Right? We had to celebrate. We had to do these things. Your brother was lost and he's found. Right? He's upset and he's staying outside because he has always obeyed. Because he's always followed the rules. That's why he's pissed. And he disagrees with what his father is doing because he doesn't understand how his father's heart works. He's disconnected from the way his father... If he understood his father, right, he'd be like, oh, man, I knew you'd do that. I knew it. I knew I'd be out here. Fine. Let's go throw a party for that ingrate brother of mine. Right? He would have wandered in because he understood his father's heart. He would have respected it. He would have appreciated it. He could have anticipated it. But he didn't understand the father's heart. He had followed all the rules. Jesus says this irritating thing in Matthew 21, 31. And I see irritating. You'll understand in a second. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. He's saying this to the, to the religious right, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We're talking about like, you know, the mucky mucks of spirituality. He's saying the tax collectors and the prostitutes, these are the lowest rung of moral society are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. And the older brother's like, well, I'm out. Right? The elder brother's goodness, I think, reveals at least a couple of fundamental problems that we need to be cautious of and lay hold of, right? Because I think we all have a little bit of younger brother and older brother in us at all times, okay? If we're being totally transparent with ourselves. We've got a little bit of both, right? Number one, here's the fundamental problem that the goodness of the older brother causes. It masks the real problem. It masks the real problem, right? We've got this cosmic sort of treason going on. I want control of my life. I want control of my destiny. I want to call the shots in the way things are going to play out with my life. So I'm going to be utterly good, follow all the rules so that I get what I deserve. Right? That's the basis of religion. It's not that complicated. Right? You give and you get. Verse 28, the older brother became angry, refused to go in, so the father went out and pleaded with him. 
verse 29, picks up and says, Look, all these years, I love this word, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. He doesn't understand why the father isn't responding to him in the way that he thinks he deserves. I did all this stuff. I slaved for you. This is the son speaking. I slaved for you. And you never gave me a goat. And a goat was, was cheap. Goat was like nothing, right? A goat was Taco Bell. Right? The fattened calf, this was prime rib. Right? This was like a real celebration. This was, you know, the real deal. And the older brother is mad. Younger brother lostness, man, smoke. If there's smoke, we know there's fire, and we know where the fire is, right? You're a younger brother. You're broken. You hang out with people who are, who are broken in their lives, and they know it. They know exactly what brought them there. They have no confusion about how they arrived at the low place that they're in. I spent many years hanging out at Westchester Park up in Westchester, right next to my house, and there was a community of homeless folks living in that area. And I'll tell you what, not a single one of them, it was really refreshing, actually, in in an odd way, not a single one of them ever put on airs. They knew exactly where they lived, and they knew exactly why they they were there and and how they got there. Many of whom who had families living in the community, many of whom have had support systems, bridges that they had burned, relationships that they had fractured because of the various challenges that they were facing, and they knew it. And in the first conversation I would have with them, yeah, I'm here. Right? I'm an addict. I'm addicted. Right? And so, you know, it makes things messy for my family. And we see each other from time to time, but, you know, it's okay. And they understand. There's no confusion with younger brother lostness. Are you with me? If there's smoke, there's fire, and you know where the fire is. But not so much with the older brother. The older brother thinks that his goodness masks his own self-sufficiency. There's smoke all over the place, but he can't find what's burning. What did I do wrong? How did this happen? Why is this happening to me? I've heard that many times. Confusion over why something is happening in their lives because they don't understand where and why they are broken. All they go back to is, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I've done all the things. I've checked all the boxes, but they don't look interiorly into that place. And slowly they've been slipping more distant from their foundation. And this just doesn't happen in our faith. It happens in our relationships. It happens in our work. It's so, so hard to get the moral person, the good person, the proper person to see where maybe the wheels started to fall off the wagon. Do you know it? It's tough. Elder brother goodness masks the real challenge that's going on. And the other thing that it does is that goodness is the main weapon in our battle against God. It is our primary go-to weapon when we get into disagreement with God or with others. Do you see what he says? Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Right? And he might be literally true. He might have never disobeyed his orders. 
and had all these years always done the right thing, right? But ever get that impression when you're in an argument? I know this is like my go-to thing. You can ask Angelina. It's, I always do blank. Yeah, she's smiling under the mask, I can tell, right? The smiling eyes, I can tell, right? I always, I've never, blah, 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 right? You ever been in that argument? And then you're starting to do the math, and you're like, well, is that really possible? That usually backfires, by the way, if you go into the mathematical probability of always and never, right? We get stuck in these modes. I always, you see what the problem is? It's because I have done all of these things, therefore you owe me this thing that I want, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to what? I'm going to demand it because I'm owed. This is older brother lostness. And that's a very difficult web to untangle, right? Because a person has done all the things they're supposed to do. I've fulfilled all the things that you've asked me to do. Why can't I go and do this one thing that I'm asking for? Right? Because we're working with different equations in our relationship different priorities. The younger brother is lost, and he's easy to see. Sinners have no trouble telling you where their sin is. But older brother lostness is tricky, and it's masked, and it's hidden, and it's got all of these sort of trigger points. Maybe we embody some of those frustrations. So I'll close with this thought. Just wrap this up. We'll start to think about symptoms of elder brother lostness. Symptoms of elder brother. I just want you to store these away, and I want you to think about them. Just kind of hold them and see if these are things that describe your journey with the Lord. One, I'm always angry at how God is arranging my life. Never happy with the way things are going. Feeling that God owes us because we've led a good life and we've done all the right things, and you don't really believe that you're a sinner saved by grace. You don't really understand the sinner saved by grace theology because you don't think it applies to you. And you either get angry with God or you get angry with yourself. There are two sides to this coin. You either are angry at God because he didn't give you the blessing that you were asking for, or you get angry with yourself and you've got sort of that lowly worm theology that says something must be wrong with me, right? And you're angry at yourself, and sometimes that anger turns inward, and you become frustrated because you're not doing your part to get the thing that you think that you deserve, right? And so you're not doing your part, and you get angry with yourself because you don't understand sinner saved by grace thinking. You're still trying to earn it. And when something goes wrong, you either get mad at God or you get mad at yourself. The second sort of part of this is joyless mechanical obedience, right? And we touched on this a little bit earlier, the all these years I've been slaving for you, orders, obedience for the elder son and the brother, it's a grind. There's no intimacy, there's no joy, there's no satisfaction, I'm just a machine and I'm just going through my day and I'm doing the things and I'm checking the boxes and my heart's not in it. They look good on the outside, but on the inside they hate it and bitterness is taking place there. There's no sweetness or wonderment to their faith. 
We're in for it, uh, in for what we can get, not because of who Jesus is. They're wired a little bit differently. The third one is there's a lack of assurance of faith and judgmentalism toward others. You never even gave me a goat, he said, right? A lack of assurance. Am I truly loved? Maybe he's asking this question. Do you really think I am deserving? Do you really care about me? There's a lack of assurance that's happening there. There's no joyful reflection on the Father's love. There's no party. There's no happiness. There's no assurance, right? And it's missing in this older brother's life. And as a result, he experienced insecurity about himself. He doesn't know his place. And so out of that insecurity, he becomes very certain of other people, right? Very certain. Do you see what he says about the younger brother? This son of yours. You ever played that card, right? It's like Mary and Martha, right? This sister of mine doesn't even say her name, right? You're angry at one of your kids and you go to your spouse and you say, well, your daughter who will remain nameless, right? You can guess as to which one it might be, right? And you start to go down the line. This son of yours. If you're a sinner saved by grace, you're extremely assured of your place and you become extremely non-judgmental toward other people because you know what it's like to be low in life. And you begin to understand what it means to let other people be where they are, right? Well, we can't judge them. We don't know what's going on in their lives. We don't know what they've gone through, right? Let's just pray for them. And on down the line. But if we're very uncertain about our own place, we can easily become uncertain about other people and suspicious of them, right? The fattened calf was way too much for one family to eat, This welcoming of everybody, they would have had to invite the community. One family can't eat the fattened calf, right? One family can't even eat one roast pig. Can you imagine? (laughs) The fattened calf, right? It's not a small animal. It's not a small undertaking, right? And this is an overweight calf. We're talking about a lot of food. We would have invited everybody. We would have included everybody. The entire neighborhood would have been brought into the celebration And the elder brother is like, why did you invite them? How did they get invited to the party? I don't want to go to that party anymore. You see it? Exclusivity of the elder brother versus the inclusivity of the Christian life that he's missing out on, right? Because he's got the in or the out settled in his mind. And this is sort of a bonus one. Self-righteousness is, I think, at the core of what plagues our world. It is what allows things like racism and classism, bigotry, hatred of all different kinds are rooted in self-righteousness. This thinking that I am somehow fundamentally better than somebody else because of my life or my choices or who I am or how I am, I am entitled to have an opinion about somebody else is the basis and the root cause 
of all of our racism and classism and bigotry, and it has no place inside of our Christianity and inside of our churches, and yet there is something about our faith and our execution of church that I think hinders us, friends. Something is being masked. Something is hidden from our sight. And it might just be our own brokenness and our own sinfulness that we fail to see that we are sinners saved by grace. And this is where the story kind of closes. We don't know whether the older brother comes in, do we? We don't know. We just know there's a party being thrown, and it had to be. We had to do it, the father says. I hope you'll come in. Do you see that? I hope you'll come and join us. I hope you'll come and participate in this gospel party that we're having. Do you hear Jesus telling that to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? This is the beauty of the gospel, Jesus says. We run out to find the people who are most in need. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the people who knew everything. I came for the people that were lost. And he celebrates this in every story, the sheep, the coin, the sons. And he says to the elder brother, I hope you'll come in. We have to do this. I hope you'll become a part of the celebration. And we don't know what happens to the older brother. And I think there's something beautiful about the ending of the parable because it invites us, doesn't it? It invites us. We are invited. We're invited to the party. He wasn't forced to come and he says, hey, you got to come in. You got to do this. You got to do that. Somebody's got to cut the calf. He says, you, you come. I hope you'll come in. And I hope that you'll join. And that's the invitation that he gives to us, friends, younger sons, older sons, desperately in need of a loving father. Let's pray together.